What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And sorry, this episode is a little late. I have been so sick this week. It's been crazy, but good news is not COVID. Took a test, still doing good. But anyways, got the episode for you. Today's guest, it's actually two guests. It is Daniel Gross and Tyler Cohen, all right? So they wrote a book called Talent, and I loved it so, 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 so much. It is such an important book, and you'll hear in this conversation a little bit of their background um, because they're they're super, super knowledgeable and experienced when it comes to hiring and just how businesses are run and everything. But the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because, man, like, I think I think there's good timing too because today I'm actually celebrating 10 years sober. All right, so I've been fired a lot. All right, but I've also been hired a lot. And something I've I've seen right because I'm 10 years sober. This was happening the 10 years prior in my addiction, right? But I've seen that there's like virtually no changes to how hiring is done, right? From filling out uh, applications to the resumes and all these other things and the whole song and dance with interviews. Well, anyways, Tyler and Daniel wrote this book and they just, you know, they bring science and research and they discuss like kind of these outdated ways that we look for talent. Right. And it's so important. And I really hope like a lot of, uh, you know, uh, managers and just, you know, HR people read this book. But I also think it's important for, you know, all of, you know, the, the rest of us who are getting jobs and everything like that, because the way we kind of view talent, it's, it's very skewed. Like I've been a firm believer that, you know, intelligence, the way we kind of measure it is really weird and people have different kind of, uh, you know, strengths and values and all these other things that should be looked at when we're hiring somebody or when we're working for somebody. Um, like me, I do a lot of entrepreneurial things and sometimes I outsource different aspects of my work. Right. So this book can help a lot of different people but i love chatting with these guys super important book the book is out it's been getting great 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 reviews so head down to the description follow tyler and daniel and make sure you grab a copy of the book and before we get started if you're new here make sure you're subscribed and if you're not yet follow me over on social media at the rewired soul on instagram and twitter give me a follow love chatting with all of you you all give me some great book recommendations i love it so make sure you follow me over there all right but anyways Without further ado, here's my conversation with Tyler Cohen and Daniel Gross about their brand new book, Talent. All right. Hello, Tyler and Daniel, thanks so much for joining me to talk about your awesome new book, Talent. And yeah, real quick, before we dive into the book, can you both introduce yourselves to the audience? I'll start with Tyler. I'm Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University and director of the philanthropic fund Emergent Ventures, which spots talent. Beautiful. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. My name is Daniel Gross. Uh, I uh, am uh, originally a uh, software founder um, started a company that got acquired by Apple in 2013 around searching machine learning at Apple for a couple of years, then uh, left, became a private uh, venture investor in a couple of startups that got pretty big, like Stripe, uh, SpaceX, Instacart, Opendoor, Coinbase, whatnot. And now I run uh, a firm called Pioneer, uh, which tries to use the internet really to find the next, uh, programmatically find the next generation of uh, founders and innovators that will hopefully start uh, companies and products that we all use and enjoy. Um, and um, I had the great honor uh, and privilege of working together with Tyler on this book about talent. Awesome. Yeah. And, and yeah, like uh, with what you both do and everything, I, you know, I'm guessing a lot of that was what inspired the book. So tell us a little bit about, yeah, what, what made you both get together and say, Hey, there's something missing. People aren't really doing this, this whole talent search correctly, how did you guys get to the point where you came together and decided to write this book? Talent is by far the main asset in this country and in the world. And we thought it was remarkable. There's not quite a seminal go-to book on talent. So we thought we would bring together our different areas of expertise. Mm. And we spent a bunch of years uh, writing this one, basically. 
Is that fair, Daniel? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how long have you two been looking into this, like in collecting research? That's one of the things I enjoyed about the book is that you guys turned to like some data and stuff. Cause a lot of like books, like for the business world, it's like a lot of anecdotes and things like that. So how long have you all been like working on this? Well, I've been doing different kinds of hiring myself for about 30 years mm. and studying the literature for about 10 to 15 years. So uh, we've only been working on this book, say, three to four years, but it's been most of my adult life. Mm. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, the process of, of the ideas that come into the book are, are quite, I mean, ancient in quotes. Uh, I have been uh, working and running businesses for over a decade now, I guess, um, mostly in software, mostly startups, uh, and have had the honor and pleasure of running pretty large teams. And I've come across, you know, this idea of talent, uh, of, of seeking, you know, uh, really kind of outlier people in whatever domain, both mm -hmm. in, in the world of hiring kind of machine learning engineers and software engineers to build a product, but also in the world of venture, which is, I think, a uh, a, a version of real extreme outlier farming. You know, in venture, you're, you're not really looking for the average person. Uh, you're really looking for the, the cream of the crop. Most venture portfolios will lose money on all of their investments, except the two or three that will return everything. So that really commands a, a form of, um, you know, humility and uh, specialization when, when you just think about finding people that are going to be, you know, extremely, extremely uh, at the tail of the distribution, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, like that, that's one of the reasons when I, when I heard about the book and started to dive into it, I, I loved it so much, right? Because, you know, I'm, so I'm 36, I've had multiple jobs and everything is so uniform. And I've always questioned, I'm like, why is everything kind of lined up this way? And you, you both just break it down just excellently and talk about like different ways we could be doing this from like, you know, hiring and interviewing and all these other things. So what do you think are like when looking for talent, uh, kind of like what you were just saying, Daniel, about, you know, looking for these outliers and everything. What do you think are some of the biggest like misconceptions when you guys are talking with people or looking at hiring practices from other businesses? What are they, what, what's like one of the number one things where they like assume like, oh, this means talent, right? But they, they might be wrong about it. I would say at least two things. First, a lot of institutions way underinvest in their pre-existing soft social networks. So who mm. comes to them looking for them? They don't think enough about. But also institutions far too frequently come up with highly predictable, cliched, totally boring interview questions yeah. that everyone is prepared for. Like, what did you do wrong on your last job? And it's the interview version of security theater. Everyone goes through the motions. No one really learns anything. Yeah. Why not just stop doing that? Yeah. Yeah, there is something uh, very um, scripted and um, kind of boring, ultimately, that I think a lot of people experience in most interviews uh, that go around in the world. And it's kind of funny if you reason about it in abstract and say, well, there's this process, a very holy process of deciding whether a particular person will be good at operating a particular resource. This could be a manager to run a team, a person to work on a particular product. And, you know, I think if you were describing to an alien, an abstract, a civilization and how it operates, you'd say, yeah, we take a lot of care. That is actually the most important decision because um, you're basically giving someone a, a lot of just not just, you know, uh, uh, financial capital, but human capital. Mm -hmm. um, and so like that's the, that that is the specialization people study their entire lives. But of course, it turns out that it's a very careless environment. And most people, I think, having gone through either end of the interview can say that it's not particularly fun, pleasant or revealing really to either party. And, um, as a result, you know, you see a lot of churn people hire, you know, people they don't like, um, mm -hmm. people don't perform the best. And, um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a process that I don't think is brain dead might be too, um, aggressive a word, but not too far from it. And, um, you know, our hope is that the book can shed some light on the area and at least to get people to think a little bit more out of the box about what we think is the most important process you know, in the American economy, which is routing the appropriate people to the appropriate resources they could be and should be working on. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like what you were just saying, like, I don't think, you know, brain dead, but like, uh, I, I think what I was thinking of it was just kind of like we, we get into that, that automation, right? Like I was just thinking like, you know, my first job when I was like 18, right. 
my hiring, <laughs> like getting hired at new places. Like I just started a new job a little while back and this was actually a little bit different, but I, maybe it's because it's like more of a tech company. But yeah, just seeing how it hasn't changed. There's been like no differences in the interviewing questions or anything like that. But even like you were saying, uh, Tyler, too, like the uh, the kind of scriptedness of it from both the interviewer and the interviewee. So I guess like one of the things I, I wonder is how much of that do you, or from your, both of your experience is like a performance, right? Is it common for people to hire someone based on an interview and then find out, you know, their personality is different or their work ethic or uh, not finding out um, different traits like when they say oh here's where i messed up the worst of my last job or that uh, typical question of what's your biggest weakness uh what's missing from that in this kind of like scripted discussion i like to focus on what the person has done and started on their own mm. especially on the internet now this will depend on the job it may not matter for baseball players yeah. but i work in media the world of ideas nonprofit sector uh, people who might become scientists so just what was the first thing you did on your own on the internet? And for how long did you stick with it? How much energy and enthusiasm mm. did you put into it? Uh, I'm not saying those never come up in traditional interviews, but to me, they're far more important than the scripted questions. If you are looking for, as the subtitle of our book indicates, energizers, creators, and innovators. Yeah. Yeah, I think ultimately, um, one of the best ways to assess talent is to really look at the actions the person takes given a collection of possibilities mm -hmm. that is much more revealing, I think, than a scripted interview question. And finding out someone's hobbies is very revealing in that sense because you have, you know, free time. So basically you can select from anything. Uh, you can spend your time on just staring at the ceiling. You can play video games. You can read books. You can go for a run. You can... Um, uh, play music and so your selections in those environments you know i think are very much uh uh underrated by most of the folks in the talent market you tend not really to think of it as much maybe you're just creating camaraderie in the interview and you ask mm -hmm. someone what they do in their spare time but it's actually quite revealing um because that person is really saying given the infinite amount of possibilities of what i could do with my free time i've decided to uh, play the piano and there's always yeah. a story there and that story can often you know, be more informative than asking someone what their greatest weakness is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something I've been, I've been meaning to ask you, you both, uh, you know, when getting you guys to come on was something I think about a lot. And I've had other guests on where we talked about, you know, the like education and the emphasis on education. And like Daniel with you, like working like in tech and startups and like Tyler, you're at like, you know, a, a university and everything. Um, I, I wonder, like, how do you think there's too much emphasis on someone's academic career? Because uh, it, it feels like a lot of it is, you know, like this signal. And it's like kind of like this, like easy way to be like, OK, this person made it through X amount of years of college. Right. So they stick with stuff or, you know, they have a, a certain level of intelligence. But as you both mentioned in the book, like we might be missing things. So, like. Where is the appropriate level that we should weigh in education? Because I imagine in, you know, with startups and, you know, with uh, software and innovation, you can find, you know, a kid who just taught himself this stuff and he's very creative and innovative and all these other things. So what's the appropriate amount of weight to put on someone's academic career, do you think? It will, again, depend on the job. For a brain surgeon, it might be critical. <laughs> but if you take economists and philosophers, Many of the greatest ones of all time did not have PhDs. Mm. So we're now in a world with far too much credentialism. If you want to get it, say a PhD in economics, not only might you need to do a postdoc, but you might need to do a pre-doc, you know, between undergraduate and graduate school. So there are just more and more hoops you have to go through, more forms of hours of homework, you know, in high school, in junior high school. And it's really selecting against people who are somewhat rebellious or people who are talented but may have ADHD mm. or just people who don't fit into the ordinary boxes because they're too weird. Yeah. So to just pick apart credentialism at all these different levels, I think we would be much better at allocating talent. It would in some ways take more work, uh, but the return is there. It's worth it. Yeah. You have anything on that, Daniel, in, in your realm? 
I think all that makes sense. I come from a world that really is only allowed to exist because of the failure of American credentialing <laughs> systems. So, yeah. um, you know, startups and software in particular is hopefully the first of many fields to come where because the proof of work, not in a crypto sense, but the proof of work in just like a what you're able to do sense is available to anyone. The the playing field, um, you know, is very, very egalitarian in a way. And so you have all these stories of founders that are dropouts from universities or never went to universities or didn't really get the credentialing. Their credentialing just became the labor and the work that they could do. Um, and so I think the fact that, you know, startups are kind of allowed to exist and are successful speaks in, in many ways. Um, to a couple of things, but one of them I think is a failure of credentialing. Yeah. Look at look at Mr. Beast. This is one of Daniel's favorite examples. <laughs> yeah. What are his credentials? We don't even know. We don't care. You're seeing because of the internet so many super talented people who probably would not have been a big deal, but in fact have immense talents. And we're just scratching the surface there. Or you see it people coming from India, coming from Nigeria, super talented. Uh their ancestors also were extremely talented, didn't have the same opportunities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, Mr. Beast is, is a great example. And, you know, I come from, you know, the YouTube world. and I know so many different creators. And when, when you know, I, I work with creators, you see how much they've taught themselves, right? Like I, I taught myself just like, you know, just the Adobe suite, like Photoshop and Premiere and just video editing and picture and like uh, audio editing for the podcast and all these other things. But here's, here's, where uh, it seems like the challenge comes in right like right now right right before we hopped on this call i was looking and there were some uh comments uh and discussion going on about you know this idea of like student uh debt forgiveness right so although you know we're primarily talking about hiring people i'm curious your thoughts like for young people right because uh, college is getting more and more expensive. My girlfriend, she just uh, graduated with her master's, right? She has tens of thousands of dollars in debt. She's going to be a social worker. So I think that's definitely like one of those careers where you need an education. You know what I mean? But I'm curious about young people because as much as, you know, we can look at this and look at, you know, the issues with credentialing, uh, even when I was younger, it was beat into my head, like, you need to go to college, right? You have to go to college if you want to get a good job. And today, uh, I'm working at the highest paying job I've ever had in my life with no, no degree at all, right? And I feel like, you know, I don't know if I got lucky or it's just me, uh, you know, working hard and all that, but it seems like young people are in a tough situation. You know what I mean? So uh, how do you think we, we address that or talk to young people in that situation. I think college should be more like a portfolio, more like a GitHub page, more mm. flexible, cheaper, that yeah. you should just be able to assemble. Well, here's my portfolio. Here's what I've done. You know, it could be 11 classes. It shouldn't be about a finished degree. Uh, here's what I've created on the internet or, you know, here are the programs I've written or here's the startup I succeeded or failed with. And that's very far from the current system, which is much closer to a one size fits all. Mm. That just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Do you do you have any conversations with uh, young people trying to get into the the tech industry, Daniel? About you know if they like, I'm sure people come to you and ask like, hey, should I go get like my programming degree or you know whatever? Is it like in that world, it's not as necessary, and they can they can kind of take that risk. Well, it's true that in the world, I think it's really any any environment where you can do the work. Um, from your bedroom and the cost of making a mistake does not cause irrevocable damage. So like not a anesthesiologist or brain surgeon. Um, uh, you, 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 I think you can generally assume credentialing is less important. Um, so software engineering or writing music or go, you know, becoming a YouTube person or editing photos, you can kind of become the best in the world at that. I mean, I think if you were to look at the eyeballs Mr. Beast gets and compare it to Fox uh, or compare it to CNN or compare it to HBO, He's not far off, um, but he's just a dude um, that got started with, you know, Adobe Premiere. Um, and so I think you can kind of generally assume the credentialing will be done by these platforms in those markets. So practically speaking, you know, software for software engineering and starting a startup that's predominantly software. I mean, you can get started on GitHub. 
um, you know, and mm. make a profile for yourself. And you don't really need, I think, the credentialing of the university. But universities do provide a lot of other things that are not just credentialing, right? I think it's probably three things. It's the credentialing, the education, and the network. Um, and the network piece is still fairly hard to get. Um, so if you're a startup founder, you know, often you, you don't really need the credentialing, say, for just writing software. Um, you might not need the education. You learn how to write to code, say, at home or online. Um, and the network is an important thing to get. And so often that's why you see founders kind of go to universities and drop out. They get some of the network and then they leave. Mm. You can also develop your own network at this point by going to any one of those, you know, software, I would say startup hubs uh, like Silicon Valley or, or London or New York. Um, you know, that won't be a perfect substitute, but um, uh, it'll, it'll be, you know, somewhat useful. There's, of course, a more philosophical angle to all of this about whether um, you know, studying the liberal arts and getting a more balanced education is, is a good thing for a person. And I'm taking no opinion on that. I'm just saying for the practical purposes, you're going to be totally utilitarian about it. Yeah. In the world of startups, I don't really think uh, you, you have to have a degree to, to be successful. And that's kind of, again, the, the magic of the whole system there. Um, yeah. I do think you have to, if you don't get the degree, you have to end up solving those three things that, you know, supposedly, um, and in many cases, you know, actually universities giving it. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So, um, I would love to hear both your thoughts on this next one, but Tyler, since you've been, you've been in this game for a few decades now, like here's, here's where I'm hoping you both can give me a little bit of optimism. Like, like I was saying, like a lot of this has just stayed the same for so long. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, you know, with uh, your book being successful and more and more people hearing about it, it, it seems like it's going to be something really difficult to change. Like. I love the book because there's so many just innovative ideas and ways for like hiring uh, to just for people to think outside the box. But do you see these kind of shifts happening? Like how, like, is this going to take decades? What do we have to do to get more companies to start doing this? Because it's been the same way for so, so long. I'm very optimistic. So first of all, the internet is largely on our side, right? Even if higher education is stagnating in some regards. Second, globalization is largely on our side. So there are more and more talented people you can hire around the globe. And they're probably working from a distance. Now, that will force some change in your procedures. I'm not saying everyone is going to make the right changes. But it means that the way you used to do things with hiring and human resources, it can't just stagnate. So there's going to be a lot more experimentation. People will learn from the winners. And I would make the general point, even if we're not spotting it all, there's more talent today available in the world than ever before mm. by a large order of magnitude. So if you stack up like the 10 world problems you're the most worried about, whatever they are, they are in fact outweighed by the good news of having more talent available than ever before. And that's reason to be highly optimistic. Mm. And the talent also is trying to find you. It's not just you finding the talent. We stress in the book, this is a two-sided market. So whatever failings the searchers may have, you know, the employers, uh, the employees, the ambitious young people, they're trying to find the right niches and they're doing Ooh. a great job. They're the ones often who do the innovating. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, something s similar to shift the momentum of, of this thing? Yeah, I, I pretty much um, agree with what Tyler said there. Yeah, I uh, no, it's interesting as, as you were talking about that, Tyler, uh, yeah, that's, you know, something I've noticed is that, uh, especially during the pandemic with more and more places, you know, working from home and everything like, uh, this new company that I'm working with, they were based in one location, the pandemic hit, and now it's, they have people all over the country, right? Like I'm, you know, one of the only people here in Las Vegas, they have people just spread out all over the place. So do you. Have, have you all just uh, seen like more and more companies moving to this and finding more talent because of this major shift to online and working from home? I was, I think I was reading the other day that there's still like 20 or 30% of people, maybe that's a high number, are still like working from home, even though the world's starting to open back up. So are, is this like helping with that shift a little bit, do you think? I think it's definitely... Go ahead, Tyler. No, uh, ridership on the New York City subway is way down. So working from home is persisting. Mm. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these technology businesses stated publicly that they're going to be working from home forever, which we'll find out in a decade if that was a mistake or not, and they'll undo that. And it's not all, you know, like that. Apple's trying to bring people back in office. Um, 
versus say Facebook or Google that have gone fully remote. And there's a certain cost to being remote, um, you know, a bit less of team camaraderie. Um, I think work is probably um, not as thrilling, um, which is cuts both ways and may not be the best thing, I think, for someone who's still in apprenticeship stage of life, mm. you know, someone in their early 20s. And obviously is a huge gift, I think, to someone that has a large family and gets to be closer to them. And so, you know, it, it kind of cuts both ways. But, you know, I think one of the main benefactors, speaking a little bit to, to or benefactor, sorry, speaking a bit to um, Tyler's point is, um, yeah, people who wouldn't be as successful in normal offices environment because of unfair dynamics, you know, maybe they're very short. Women, I think sometimes in general, you know, just struggle in an office dynamic um, in a way that they do less so on Zoom. Um, like if, if there was a guy, you know, that was being, you know, somewhat predatory to them and weird, like everything's just in a safer space on Zoom. Mm. And so to the extent that that was a, I don't know what the number is, one, two, three, four, five, six percent tax on just pleasantness of workforce, Zoom fixes that. And so it changes things um, yeah. and it changes the type of charismas you end up looking for. Um, and um, it's it's also unclear that it's going to stick the way it is forever, but it's also very clear that it's never going to fully go away. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, on that topic too, with some of, uh, a lot of, you know, work being shifted online, you, you, you have a whole section in the book about how interviewing is different. You bring up a lot of different points that I hadn't even really thought about. So what, what should, you know, uh, employers or people doing the interviewing process know that's different, you know, interviewing someone on Zoom than doing it in person? What, what things don't we know? What's, you know, how do we, sh you know, make adjustments to do the interview properly? Online, people cannot rely on what I call their physical charisma. So you need to think about what kind of job or what kind of sector is this. Ooh. But you may get more information because you're not fooled by their physical charisma. Now, if the job itself is about physical charisma, like fashion model, well, that's a big problem. But a lot of times you learn more, the person feels more able to open up, it's less threatening. If you think about you know, going to see your therapist or going to a confession booth for the Catholic Church, those are settings that are a bit actually like a Zoom call in the sense that there's not the quite direct confrontation, the direct eye contact. And those are useful settings for eliciting information. So think about your Zoom call. Yes, it's a restriction, but it's also an opportunity and lean into its strengths. And you're going to uncover talent in people you wouldn't have spotted otherwise. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Have Have you, Daniel, like, is this something that uh, has been going on for a while, like in, in the tech sector a little bit more? Like, do you feel like that that realm has more experience with the, the Zoom interviewing uh, than the traditional companies? Well, prior to COVID, um, there were obviously technology companies that had some fraction of their workforce be remote entirely, including those like GitLab that were entirely remote even prior to COVID. Mm. Um, and so those companies did do things, though, that aren't quite happening now during COVID. For example, they'd always try to meet the person in person at some point during the interview panel. And, you know, today, obviously, people are hiring entirely remotely. Um, and I think that's a big shift, even 30 minutes in person with someone or an hour where they fly in and meet each other. That, 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 that's probably, um, you know, if there was an exchange rate, that would be worth in 5x the hours of Zoom time. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you, you do get less information, you get different information. Um, and, and the idea of, you know, hiring 100, 200, 300 people fully remotely is relatively new. I mean, even though these companies have worked with people remotely, again, they, you know, for the most part, I think always had some type of, you know, in-person moment during the interview panel. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it is uncharted territory. Silicon Valley is, I think, probably more comfortable with it than say a factory. Um, yeah. so on a spectrum, I think it's definitely been early to this trend. Um, and then the other thing that that's changed a lot is in the early days of remote hiring, a lot of it was not, uh, a lot of it was really, you'd only hire people that had been remote for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so there's a bit outside of the scope of the book, but there's a bit of, you know, how, you know, to run your life in a remote world versus a going into the office world, just in terms of, you know, mental hygiene and, you know, staying happy and energized and moving around all day instead of being stuck at your desk. There are a lot of things you get for free 
Um, of course, when you go into an office, like literally walking to a new space that you don't get when you're home. And so a lot of these companies would prefer to only hire people that have been remote for a while. Um, mm. cause it, it, it tends to take a while to learn all these things, but now of course, everyone got shock therapy into it as byproduct of COVID. Yeah. So, so it's a bit more of a mixed bag. And, you know, I think at the end, every, there will be a new equilibrium that will be more in person than the current remoteness. Um, um, but, uh, the baseline will never go back to what it was pre COVID, um, especially in software engineering, where the market is much more competitive on remote work. Yeah. So. I think ultimately, like, because all banks are going to say force all their or many of their analysts back in office, the finance industry will be in office. But all it takes is two, three mega cap software companies to offer remote. And then suddenly the whole market's at a new equilibrium. And mm. if you want to compete with the best talent, you have to offer remote. So I think the base rate for startups will permanently be elevated in a remote world uh, in a way that won't really be comparable to other industries. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of, you know, all this like remote and travel and everything. I want to ask you both a question that I've wondered about for years. And since you two have a lot more experience than I do, help me understand this. It's about travel, right? Like I've worked for large, you know, like uh, companies with locations all over the country and everything like that. And there's a lot of traveling, right? And just from a business perspective, like it seems like a lot of it might be a massive waste of money, right? Flying people all over the country for, you know, one meeting that's like two hours, putting them in a hotel and everything like that, right? To me, I look at that, I'm like, this seems like we could be spending this money elsewhere, but you know, when it's a multi-billion dollar company, maybe it's just pennies. But I'm curious with both of you, like since we're talking about all of these different ideas from the book, like, is this, is this something else that's just kind of like uh, the norm that, hey, you need to have somebody in person for like, a one hour meeting, like how many situations, I guess I'm asking, are that important where someone needs to hop on a plane, fly four five, six hours across the country to sit down with somebody for an hour? Is that something that we overdo a little bit? Or do you both think that's like absolutely necessary to read body language and all that kind of stuff? I can sample so much more talent with the Zoom call. Now, again, there are the disadvantages, but there are really quite a few interviews. We've all been through this where you know the answer is a no within a few minutes or even within the first 20 seconds. And that's a sign that you want to be sampling more people mm. but giving them less time. So you can do follow-ups in person if that's what the choice requires. So no one is ruling that out. But even if someone comes to the office, if they live nearby, well, you've got to serve them water, you feel you need to give them a tour of the office and so on and so on. While that can be useful, it's also a potential inefficiency and if you have a bunch of half hour, hour Zoom calls in a sequence, if you don't get too, you know, bleary eyed or bleary minded, you're just contacting more of the world. And then the people you speak to, they're in principle sort of future scouts for finding other people. So you just have a much broader and quicker reach. Yeah. And again, follow up in person if you need to. No one's trying to rule that out. Got it. How about, how about you, Daniel? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it's a trade-off where I think you get probably a order, if not two orders of magnitude, more breath and maybe three times less depth. I don't really know. Um, but but the trade-off on the margin is definitely worth it. And um, many of venture firms, even prior to COVID, you know, would definitely do this, take the first, second, uh, or even third meeting over a remote before, you know, flying someone out. So Got it. I think it allows you to have a, a multi-step process. Now you're asking the question, is the flight over for that final interview ever even worth it? Uh, or can you just do everything remotely? And, um, you know, I think to be totally frank, we're, we're, we're at 1% of human history with remote work. So mm. still in early innings of this world and, you know, the, you know, the full literature that will be written 200 years from now and the yeah. exact you know, you're, you're trading pixels for pheromones in a way, uh, if you do everything remotely and who really knows what's going on in a interpersonal dynamic that we don't really even have the aptitude or way to measure. So, you know, I think, um, I think the, the, for, for teams that are really f looking to minimize downside and looking to maximize upside, having that final, you know, you know, in-person interview might be rewarding, but, but the, the benefit of breath, I think greatly outweighs the, the lack of depth. Um, just because you're you're able to to tie those point samples so many and speak to so many more people. 
Got it. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. That's something I, I think about, um, you know, uh, just in regards to like mental health, because there's been a lot of conversations, especially like, you know, like my son, for example, that first year of COVID, kids were like doing online school and there was like a lot of concerns about their mental health and yeah, with people working from home and all that stuff. So sometimes it's just good to get out of the house too. But um, one of the other challenges that it feels like we face when it comes to finding the right talent because as I'm reading your your book, it seems like there's a lot of people who slip through the cracks, right? And we talked a little bit about credentialing and everything like that. But the first step of the process, right? The the applications and the interviews. Some of some of these companies just get so many, so 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 many, and it's difficult to go through them all, right? So it seems like there's a lot of shortcuts and just looking at certain things, maybe like flipping through like your education or whatever it is, and. There's a story that comes up in so many books and it's about Amazon trying to create an algorithm that could do this. And then they found out it was like, you know, making sexist decisions for some reason they couldn't fix it. So they scrapped it. But anyways, the application process seems like that's one of the biggest challenges with finding talent. What are, what are ways that companies can kind of adjust when they just get hundreds of applications and they're limited on the time they can spend looking through each one? I would stress first that our book focuses on the individual act of judgment rather mm. than how to build a scalable hiring process. But even when you are a large company, having to employ many people fairly rapidly, pretty quickly you reach the point where you have to make individual judgments about them. Where in the company do they go? How much authority do they have? Whom are you going to promote? So even in that setting, you don't avoid questions of judgment. Uh, yeah. But in terms of how you evaluate very large numbers of people. Uh, again, I'm in general an advocate of what I broadly call scouting, which is yeah. recommendations. Mm, yeah, that kind of helps. Uh, anything on that, Daniel? Yeah, I think that works. I mean, there's all sorts of systems that can help you screen people in mass, but ultimately, um, you know, I think the most too powerful and, it, and, and the answer is a bit different. I think if you're, you know, an agency like the military or walmart or like you have a huge you know staffing just thinking about how to hire people um but if you don't have all of that the two things that are very useful and i think still underrated are real references if you can get them and scouting um which is a, just a variant of references as well as um just seeing the work that people did yeah yeah absolutely so when it comes to um you know building the right teams and everything uh you guys talk uh, uh, about personality types and different personalities and you know uh just from my personal work history like i used to work in like you know sales or just commission-based jobs right and there would often it seems like there'd be this trade-off like this person is like a jerk they like might backstab people or whatever but they make the company a lot of money right so when it comes to like personalities are there are there certain trade-offs that should be looked at? Is there any kind of personality? Is, is, do you, do you, either of you have like a hard and fast rule? Like if their personality is a certain way, like, no, it'll be too toxic for the team, regardless of the excellent work that they put in, or, you know, even on the opposite end, someone who's extremely introverted and shy. Like I remember reading Susan Cain's book, Quiet, and it talked about how a lot of extroverts, you know, uh, you know, the work, the workforce is kind of built for them because they're very outgoing and everything like that. So what, what are some of these trade-offs that companies should be looking for when it comes to personality types? Daniel, what? Tyler, I guess my question to you would be what, when is weird too weird at what point? <laughs> it's, Cause I, I do think there's obviously the case that, you know, not everyone's perfect and you end up with these uncalibrated people that are often very good at one thing and terrible at something else. But how should one think of, you know, well, it, actually it's not going to work out. They're too weird. When is, when does that go too far? I would express the, the message of the book in the following way. There's so many sectors, so many different kinds of jobs. We can't tell you what are the personality traits for each and every kind of job, yeah. but we give you the general categories that you should be thinking in terms of, mm. and not just standard five-factor personality theory with neuroticism, openness, extroversion, but a number of factors that we 
have ourselves found useful. So what you need to do is you have a hiring team within your institution and to share this language and this framework with them so they can talk it through. But mm. there's not a universal answer. Uh, a sales team in particular, that typically is a highly measurable form of output. And very often the salespeople don't work together that much. Yeah. So your ability to take on a toxic jerk is higher there than in a lot of other settings where people actually are working on team projects. Mm. When there are team projects, my intuition is essentially never to take on the toxic person. If it's work from a distance, solo work, work with you know measurable outputs, clear revenue targets, then I think this people who are too weird or the people who are too hostile to others, then maybe it can work out. But that's just the beginning of a broader framework you need to build out in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, it, it brings up something that I, I remember hearing from, uh, you know, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk a while back. And I'm curious uh, if you disagree or if you agree with this, but anyways, I remember him talking, uh, I think it was at like a Dutch brothers like event. Right. But he was talking about how, you know, we're not quick enough to fire people. Right. So part of this like hiring process and firing talent, uh, just, you know, the ego that goes into it of, Hey, I, I vouch, I basically vouch for this person. I brought him on. Then there's, you know, the costs that, you know, of onboarding someone and all that kind of stuff. Right. But when it comes to, you know, weird people or people who, you know, like maybe they, they were good at like disguising their personality during the interview. Uh, do you think that we're just not quick enough to get rid of somebody who was becoming a problem or not who we thought they were when we were assessing their talent? Or should we be giving people a longer chance to see if they can return back to that person we initially thought they were? No, I strongly agree. We're not on average quick enough to fire people. There's status quo bias at virtually all levels mm. of the hiring and employing process. But also to try to answer Daniel's question more directly, when is weird too weird? The more division of labor you have in an institution, in a company, in a society, the more you can tolerate and mobilize weird. Mm. But there's one kind of weird you need to look out for that almost always fails. And that's weird people who have no sense of which hierarchies they ought to be trying to climb. And I saw a lot of this in my early days as a chess player, you know, as a young teen. I think Daniel has seen it in gaming. People who are super talented, they're great at the game, they're great at chess, but they have no other ambition. And they don't understand, well, the next step maybe is to give up chess and look for something else where you can, you know, apply your smarts because there's a better hierarchy that you can try to win at. And quite a few very weird people, they're discontent to be weird and, you know, memorize the subway schedule or whatever their thing is. And okay, but they're the ones you don't want to hire. So if someone shows signs of being weird, I try to ask them questions to see whether they understand which are the valuable hierarchies and institutions and which are the ones you ought to more or less ignore, you know, lay aside, step over, just to use stepping stones to a higher and better life. And that's, I found, the best predictor of which weird people will work out. A lot of top tech CEOs, they're pretty weird, but they understand like, hey, you know, I want to have the best company in this sector. That's a pretty good ambition to be weird at. Yeah. So what, what, like, do you have an example of like one of these hierarchies that you're kind of like thinking of that comes to mind like that, you know, they should be thinking about and which ones, you know, they, they might be able to avoid? People who care too much what their neighborhood thinks of them, what their high school peers think of them, sometimes yeah. what their families, parents think of them. Those are at least potential danger signs. To the extent they're able to think about and talk about, like evaluators, peers, audiences who go beyond what's immediately before their eyes, then they're showing more potential. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And that, that's something, you know, I... Yeah, I, I wanted to discuss that a little bit because that's something I, I had to realize a, a long time ago, right? I had to adjust my priorities. But, you know, I'm curious for anybody who's listening to this right now, um, you know, because this is something that, you know, I do think employers should be caring about and everything. What's What do you think someone could do to work on themselves if they notice that maybe, you know, they're focusing on the wrong things in life and it's not really helping their career or, you know, uh, starting a new career or whatever it is? Uh, do you have any advice that you give to younger people coming up or even someone who's been stuck in this pattern for a while? 
I have two pieces of general advice, good for almost everyone, including super successful people. A, get a better peer group, and B, get mm. better mentors. Nathaniel, what would you say? Yeah, I agree with your advice that the most important thing, it's interesting in the world of startup founder, people often are obsessed with ideas as they should be. I mean, you know, everyone has that company idea moment. I want to do this. I want to do that. But then you often have people that don't really know what to do, but very much want to have an idea. And that's a very dangerous situation. It's very hard to think of good startup ideas in a box. Um, and um, the thing to focus on then, if you don't have a particular burning itch, really is that working on two or three good friends or people that you respect or, you know, people that, um, you, you know, and admire, maybe that are technical, um, uh, on something, uh, and that peer group is often more important than the actual idea. Uh, when I started my first business, actually, my co-founder started a search engine really, uh, although he was working at Google at the time, um, was pretty agnostic um, to whether we'd work on search or something else. I, I think I remember him saying, you know, we, we got along really well together and, and my idea wasn't bad. Um, and I kind of think that that's the correct orientation. He was very wise in that moment. And, and um, you kind of want to snap to grin on the idea, but really focus on the peer group of people that you're around. Yeah, no, excellent advice. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's something I've, I'm already talking with my son about, even though he's 13, but I, I hope he doesn't make some of the mistakes that I made when I was younger and then getting into the workforce and getting older. But um, with a little bit more of your time, I wanted to, you know, uh, round this out. I have a couple more questions. Two of my favorite chapters, uh, you know, you were discussing uh, diversity and then also just uh, like neurodivergence and things like that. So let's start with diversity. Um, like I want people to check out the book, but like what are some general uh, things to be taken into consideration? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations about like, oh, we're pushing diversity too much. We need to hire the best people. And one of the things I love about the book is it kind of debunks that because the best people kind of changes right but when is diversity good when is it overdone or bad like if if someone's hiring what should they look out for there so they're just not only focusing on diversity or only focusing on what they think is the most talent and not having a good variety of people on a team i prefer to focus on super concrete advice and here's a few points i would offer to men trying to hire women first there's some evidence that very smart men don't quite conceptualize just how smart the smartest women are. Mm. They assume they're not quite as smart as they are, and uh, they're underrating the smarts of very smart women. Men interviewing women, again, this is on average, but they tend to care too much about their impression of the woman's personality. Did I like her? Was she pleasant to me? Uh, certainly for jobs that can matter, but women who can be difficult or just who aren't that likable can end up overvalued. Uh, there's also a lot of settings, and again, there's research evidence for this, that women can be better at grasping the intelligence of other women than men can. So yeah. uh, those are just some points to take into interviews or the hiring process if you're a man. Ways in which you might be screwing up now on women, even though you might not be like a sexist or chauvinist or biased or prejudiced, uh, those may be built into us yeah. to some extent, and you have to try to overcome them. You'll make better decisions. Yeah. How about you, Daniel? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think um, it's obviously a sensitive topic. And I think the, to me, the most exciting version of diversity and inclusion is not necessarily trying to put everyone in the same exact role and uh, having quotas for that, but trying to find the places and roles where people can use their natural gifts and talents mm. the most. Um, and so I think, you know, just a, a very random example, but I, I believe I read a paper a while, very interesting paper a while back that had a simulated, uh, trading environment and women perform much better than men in moments of very high volatility. Um, cause men have a tendency to be very overconfident and trade much more. Mm. Um, and so there kind of shows you, you know, there are differences that are, uh, that, that can be used. And I think a good company will be able to fit the, you know, the right person into the role that they could shine. Cause I think everyone wants to do well in their job and everyone wants that feeling of being great. Um, and so I think it's situations where, you know, you could, um, you could really fit people to the right type of role while they're perform. You do everyone, I think a huge service. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And, you know, that, that brings us to our, our last question. And it, it's about, you guys, you guys talk about uh, different uh, mental health issues or people on the spectrum. And I love that chapter. One of the reasons is, you know, I am a recovering addict. I got sober 10 years ago and I realized that there were certain aspects of my personality that, you know, I thought were like this curse, but now that I'm sober, like I, for example, I get latched onto something and I work on it. I make sure it gets done. Like my mind gets locked on. That's something, you know, that used to be a bad thing. Now it's a good thing, right? But I've worked in, you know, addiction treatment. I've worked with a lot of people with different mental health issues. And it does seem like this has been a problem for a while because there's still somewhat of a stigma, right? Like for example, me, I keep that on the down low or used to rather. Now I'm a little bit more open about it probably because I talk about it publicly too, but a lot of people are afraid to discuss this. Like nobody's gonna, you know, pull on their application. I don't know if they should, but you know, hey, I have bipolar disorder, hey, I'm on the spectrum, but you guys break down how there are certain things that, you know, can be a benefit, right? And, you know, I, I'm curious, like even with diversity, What's it, what do you think it's going to take in that realm? Is it going to take employers to, you know, educate themselves a little bit more about how this isn't necessarily a bad thing, how, you know, different types of thinkers might actually excel in certain position. Like, how do we get that message out there? So they understand that this is something that could work and be beneficial for their business. I think it's starting to happen. So Elon Musk is possibly the greatest entrepreneur of our time. Mm. And he has been brave enough to come out as Asperger's autistic. So people notice that. So it's not an accident that he's both a great entrepreneur and autistic. It gives him focus, a certain kind of objectivity, maybe a certain kind of obsessiveness. And that has worked for him. Uh, it doesn't mean that every person with a disability or a difference is going to fit into every job. Absolutely not. But keep an open mind about everyone. Because people who on the surface have, you know, things wrong with them, uh, that may correspond to great talents elsewhere that are the other side of that coin. Yeah. How about, how about you, Daniel? Like in the, in the tech side, kind of like what, uh, you know, Tyler was just bringing up too. I think, I think the book mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, like there are certain people on the, on the spectrum that like really do well, you know, because they're in an environment where they can kind of like just focus on a project and do their thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, I think that it's, it's this, it's this thing of, um, you know, I think there are people that are highly compatible in any situation, in any environment. And then they think there are people that nothing will work in any situation or any environment. Um, and then everyone else is kind of in the middle on this spectrum of will work really bad or really not well, depending on the situation. Um, and what you want to do, I mean, the game, I think that the free market is so far, I think the best organizing system we have for this, but it's by no means perfect. Um, is sort the right people into the right configurations where, I mean, if mm. someone's slightly on the spectrum, um, you know, maybe they can leverage their ability to have obsessive thinking um, instead of being destructive, uh, uh, you know, in an environment where, um, I don't know, you there's a lot of volatility. Uh, it can be constructive when it comes to, say, engineering, where you just need to think about the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and so I think it all comes down to the game of sorting people or putting people into a situation where they perform the best. And I think the most exciting thing to me about the whole book and about this whole world of talent is I suspect that we're probably only at five, 10% of our maximal efficiency at this. I mean, maybe even mm. 1%. Um, and there's so much of the unhappiness in every single job I think people have can be attributed to not being in the right place. Some jobs are actually truly miserable no matter what. Yeah. Um, like I, I imagine doing content moderation uh, for something like Facebook is very difficult no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, but um, for many situations, more often than not, uh, the unhappiness is just a mismatch um, between the gifts the person has and the job they're currently working in. And um, that, that mismatch is really a fault of, I think, a lack of education and societal thinking um, uh, in our kind of civilizational hippocampus about talent. We don't we don't really think about that kind of routing problem per se, and we should. Um, and so that's kind of the raison d'etre uh, for uh, for the book in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and yeah, that's a great way to end this thing. I, I love the book so much, especially, like I said, those parts of it. Uh, I, I was tweeting about it as I read it. I'm like, I want to 
just grab like a thousand copies, give it to every manager out there in every company. So the book just came out. So for everybody listening, where, where can they find the book and where can they find the both of you to keep up to date with what you're doing, what you're working on and all that kind of good stuff. The book is at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent booksellers around the United States. There are many foreign editions, some of them already out, especially in the UK, mm. uh, many more to come. I'm on Twitter at Tyler Cowan, E-N, very Googleable. My email is in fact online and I write a blog at marginalrevolution.com. Beautiful. And where can we find you, Daniel? Hi. Well, uh, I am also on the internet. I guess I have a Twitter account. I'm not as anywhere near prolific as Tyler. Um, uh daniel gross and um obviously the book is on amazon and uh yeah i uh i'm sure in in uh at the end of the day um if there was a person to follow here it would definitely be the one that i followed which is tyler um and i could highly i highly recommend the marginal revolution blog really to any um any homo sapien on planet earth and maybe other planets too um but i would really recommend people go check it out Awesome. I need to check it out. I was telling Tyler before this, I need to check out his other books. But yeah, you guys, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this important book. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Great to chat with you, Chris. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tyler and Daniel. Like I said, they are, you know, they're, they're awesome. And like, I love just picking both of their brains and getting their different uh, points of views, right? Like they both bring something different to the table. And I think that's what really made this book work. But kind of like we discussed uh, later in this conversation towards the end there, like I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and respect um you know that they dedicated some time to people who have different uh mental you know uh quote unquote illnesses right because these can uh be different strengths and i can't remember the book there is a book uh it's called the power of something go google it or look it up but anyways there's a fantastic book i read probably about three or four years ago and it's about the different strengths that come along with different uh mental quote-unquote illnesses right like adhd anxiety depression and then uh some of you are familiar with randolph nessie uh he was on the podcast not that long ago uh, he wrote a great book called good reasons for bad feelings but anyways I think it's super beneficial for all of us out there who struggle with, you know, different forms of, you know, uh, psychological disorders. Like when we know that these can bring different strengths, right? When we see them as kind of like, even though it sounds kind of cheesy, like a superpower, you know what I mean? Like, I think that is super, super helpful because too often we look at these things as like a curse and that's, you know, uh, uh, bad because you compound that with the outside stigma from everybody else. So it's super important that we talk about this and read about it. And I'm super glad that Tyler and Daniel are getting this message out to people who are hiring people, right? Because there shouldn't be discrimination towards people who uh, work differently, learn differently and stuff like that, because there are so many people who are just flying under the radar that are just doing killer work. All right. And I could go on forever about how paranoid I was when I got sober about even telling people that I was in recovery and stuff like that. But what they see is that I'm a dude where when my mind gets set on something, you know, I get it done. So like that used to be drug seeking behavior, but now it's just like working hard and finishing projects and you know, all that kind of stuff. But anyways, love the book. It's a must read. Head down to the description. Make sure you uh, follow Daniel and Tyler over on uh, Twitter. Grab a copy of their book, Talent. It is out now. All right. But anyways, before I let you go, a few quick things. If you're new, make sure you're subscribed. And if you're not yet, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. If you want to support the podcast, a few easy free things that you can do. One, share this episode. Two, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. That kind of stuff helps out a lot with the algorithms and everything. And by the way, aside from it being my uh, uh, sobriety birthday, it's my like actual birthday too. So uh, I'm 37 uh, years old today. So do me a favor for my birthday present. Make sure you share this episode and the other episodes and subscribe and follow and tell all your friends. That is your present to me. All right. <laughs> but some other ways that you can help out the podcast, uh, you can become a subscriber, a paid subscriber over on Substack. It's only five bucks a month or $50 for the year. And you get all these episodes a day early. All right. And uh, another thing you can do is head down in the description. There's an affiliate link for better help online therapy. So speaking of mental health, 
one of the reasons I've been able to stay sober and not just sober, but stay sane is by, you know, taking advantage of therapy and better help is a service that I've personally used. So if you're looking for something that's affordable, super convenient, because you can do it online, uh, you can do it through an app, you can FaceTime, you can text, call, whatever it is. BetterHelp is awesome. You work with a licensed therapist. So head down to the description if you're interested and check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp, right? But another huge thanks to Tyler and Daniel for taking the time to come on the podcast. They're super busy. So I appreciate it. Grab a copy of their book. And yeah, for all of you, I will see you next week. So until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.